He's not minor <clears throat> because of his importance. He's minor just because of the physical size of his book. Uh, it's a fairly short uh, book. Uh, the theme throughout this book is pretty much single-fold, and that is the day of the Lord. Um, the day of the Lord. And it's broken into basically two sections. <coughs> in, <coughs> excuse me. And Joel uses... A, um, a current event that happens in the life of Judah, um, or in the, the nation of Judah, uh, during the time that he was uh, ministering there, uh, he uses something that takes place uh, that was a, a pestilence that took place, and it was an invasion of locusts that came on the land, and literally within just a few hours, uh, devoured pretty much everything that was green in the country, and you can, re you can imagine uh, back in that day, everything was uh, farm-related, and that's how they ate, and that's how they fed their families. And uh, just in a matter of hours, all of it being destroyed throughout the land. And they had a swarm, a black cloud of locusts that came in and uh, destroyed the vegetation in Judah. And uh, it was an actual event that took place during his time. And so uh, in chapter 1, uh, in verses 1 down through about verse number 20, uh, we find that... that uh, uh, Joel refers to that as uh, the day of the Lord in the sense of uh, it bringing God's judgment. And of course that phrase, the day of the Lord, causes us to think of end time events and the judgment, the tribulation period, and the things that we've been studying on Wednesday night in Revelation. Uh, and so while he refers to that as a judgment of the Lord and a day of the Lord, um, as he gets past verse number 20, he uses that, as so often these men do, they use uh, events in, in the life of either themselves personally or in the life of the nation to illustrate what God is trying to show them. And so he uses this plague of the black locusts that come, the, the black cloud of locusts that come, to illustrate what he refers to later now as the terrible day of the Lord. Um, and uh, take a moment and look with me in Joel chapter number 3. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And let's see here, I, do I have the verse? I think I've got the verse written down here. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse number 11. Back up chapter 2, verse number 11. Uh, you'll see when he refers to it now, he's speaking of future events. And in verse number 11 it says, And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong and executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? And so again, speaking of the days that are to come, um, looking forward to the end time event. So Joel, uh, as an entirety of a book, really goes hand in hand with, um, with the events of Revelation and the tribulation period and is uh, strongly prophetic in that area. And all of the message that Joel gives is one of God's coming judgment and yet, in the message, and one of the amazing things to me as I've studied all these, as we go through these prophetic books, God always talks to Israel or to Judah, depending on which one and, and what time of season he's, he's teaching them these things. He always brings a message of warning and says, judgment is coming. But he always tempers it with, unless, unless you turn to me. He always, in his, in his warning of judgment, gives away for them to be reconciled and not to have to go through that judgment. By the way, the plan of salvation is exactly that. 
It's the story of God's coming judgment on sin. But he makes a way where we can escape it. We don't have to go through it. And he puts the choice in the hands of us, you and I. We get a very powerful, powerful privilege. And that is the privilege of free will, to make our own choice. God doesn't force us to go to heaven. Uh, he gives us that option to go to heaven. Why somebody would uh, deny that, I don't know. I was reading something yesterday, an article yesterday, and uh, the, the statement that one fellow made was, uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was phrased. I'm not going to be able to use the exact wording. But he was talking about how he'll be great company in hell. The idea that, that hey, when we get to hell, you come look me up because we're going to hang out and buddy around and pal around together in hell. And I thought, this fellow has no clue. He has no idea what it's going to be like. And people are making their choice because they're deceived by this. And Satan makes hell seem like it's not that big of a deal. And uh, we're going we're gonna to go to the party place. And yeah, there may be a little suffering we have to go through, but we're going to party while we're there. And that's the mindset that people have. And they're choosing it willingly. They're not, they're not ignorantly going there many times. They are willingly choosing, I'm not going to go to heaven. I'm going to go to hell because, hey, that's where all my friends are. And we're going to really party it up when we get there. And that's what they look at. <clears throat> this is a tremendous book that deals with the terrible. And in verse number 11 of chapter 2, he says, The great and terrible day of the Lord. And uh, so Joel deals with this. He talks about judgment uh, coming that deals with locusts. Uh, and he uses the illustration of what Judah had just been through. And said, you think this is bad. Let me tell you what's coming. This is what God wants us to know. He deals then with some plagues that we'll find in the book of Revelation. He deals with the idea of famine and uh, fires that destroy the land and uh, uh, the uh, overcoming of armies that come and desolate the land, uh, decimate the land uh, with their invasions and uh, the power of being under subjection by these folks and extraordinary things happening in the heavens. And Joel prophesies these things. <coughs> Excuse me. His message is one to draw. The purpose of it is not just to inform. And by the way, I think prophecy ought always to be this. The prophecy that Joel was giving was not just to inform Israel what was yet to come. The prophecy was given with an intent of bringing the, the nation of Judah back to repentance. And say, I, I need to repent. I need to get these things right. That is always a, one of the key elements, I believe, of prophecy. For us to look inwardly, to evaluate ourselves. Are we ready? If that day were to come, are we going to escape that? Have we trusted Christ as our Savior? Are we living in such a way that we're pleasing to God? Uh, there ought to be a self-evaluation. Are we reaching people? Are we serving God the way that we should? Are we reaching people with the gospel? Uh, these ought to be things that stir us. And as we come to prophecy, I've said it so many times when we've gone through uh, these last several months of studying Revelation and Daniel and some of the prophecies uh, of the end time events. Uh, we don't just do this to gain a knowledge of what's coming. We do this to stir us and to motivate us and to cause us to live with eternity in view. These things are not just fairy tales. They're not stories. They're not fiction. These things will actually happen. And it ought to cause to serve, uh, uh, serve to, uh, to motivate us. Uh, to live the way we should, 
and to serve the way we should. And we ought to always be looking for that. So his message is this, uh, to draw them to repentance, to let them know that it is not too late. Look with me as we go uh, to um, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 12. <clears throat> because now he, he warned them in verse 11 about the terrible day of the Lord. But look in verse number 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, <clears throat> Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. In other words, if you'll come back to me, I, I won't make these things happen. He said, and, and by the way, he makes a statement here that I think is a wonderful thing. I've preached on this passage before. I don't know that I've done it here since I've been at Keithland. But I love what he says here. He says, rend your heart, not your garments. You can outwardly be remorseful, but are we inwardly broken over our sin? There needs to be a rending of the heart. I know a lot of, a lot of folks, a lot of churches that outwardly you look at them and say, boy, that's a great, great church. Look at them. Look how clean they are. How, how uh, boy, they just, they, everything outwardly is right. You know, the outside can be washed really nice. The heart can be just as filthy as filthy can be. The importance of the heart, the inner man. God says, I don't want your garment rent. I want your heart rent. I want you to be broken of this. In Psalm 51, when David wrote that psalm after he had committed uh, sin with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah the Hittite, he said the thing that God wants is a broken and a contrite heart. He said that's what, that's what he doesn't want the sacrifice. He wants the broken and the contrite heart. And uh, I think there's a tremendous thing to be learned there. Let's look in verse 14. For who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, let those that suck the breast, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her, uh, out of her closet. Let the priests... And the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? And can I tell you this? I think in verses 13 through 17, you find a pattern of revival. This is what it takes for our hearts to be to the place of God reviving us and stirring us. He mentions that it's for every single person. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter what position you have in life. Every single person, he talks about this, needs to come to the Lord with the brokenness. Even the priests and the ministers of the Lord need to come weeping. Lord, help us. We're living in a day where I'll be real frank with you, if more tears were shed on the altars of our churches and in our prayer closets, our country would not be in the situation it's in today. There's not the brokenness. There's not the sorrow. So even in the mention of God's judgment, God is wonderful, is He not, to tell them, if you'll do this, I'll show mercy. I'll bring a blessing instead of judgment. And that's always God's message. For those that will trust Him, He'll bring blessing. For those that reject Him, He'll bring judgment. It's that simple. It's that simple. 
And he's not the one that chooses. We are. We're the ones that have the choice. And every single man that's ever been born that has sense and reasoning in his mind has that choice. They can choose to accept God and trust him at his word. And in that case, he'll receive blessing in life. Or they can turn from him and reject him. And God will bring judgment for their sin. I know that sounds harsh, but God is absolutely right to do so. We're living in a day where even things that are fair, people say are not fair. They're not just. Can I tell you this? God, by the time he brings judgment on man, he has more than given them ample opportunity. And by the time that judgment comes, he is absolutely just and he is absolutely right. If he had not been long-suffering, if he had not shown mercy, if he had just simply brought judgment the first time man sinned, he would have still been right and just to do so. The fact of his mercy and his long-suffering is just one of those wonderful things about our God. We don't deserve it. He doesn't owe it to us. And we cannot blame him when he didn't give a man enough time or enough opportunity. He had every right to judge us at the very day we sinned. He is a just God. He is a right God. So he gives this message to draw them to repentance. He tells them about the idea of rejection, bringing judgment. He tells them about the idea of uh, trusting him and re repenting uh, to receive the blessings. Uh, he talks about those blessings being both material blessings and spiritual blessings. And uh, I know sometimes when we think of it being God's blessing, we think strictly in the, the material realm, uh, but some of them are, are spiritual blessings. And I think uh, some of us can understand that and understand what he's talking about there. It will be during this time of judgment, and we've learned this also on Wednesday nights, it will be during this time of judgment that men all over the world will finally understand that God is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and is in control of the history of mankind. There are individual things that happen in our life that may be decided by our choices. But when you look at the history of man, God is in control of that. He controls every aspect of that history. And uh, the overall plan of God is not going to be changed. Uh, there are circumstances of life that we can change the mind of God on. It's happened throughout Scripture. There have been a number of times that man was able to come and change God's mind, or at least have him willing to change his mind. Think of the story of Abraham when uh, God met with him and said, I'm going down to destroy Sodom. God was willing to change his mind if he could have found the righteous people. There were times when God wanted to destroy Israel and begin a whole new nation with Moses, and Moses changed his mind, caused God to change his mind. But that didn't stop the history or the course of the history of mankind. And so don't get this idea that uh, we, are, we are just uh, robots, that everything is predestined and, well, I, I just couldn't help myself. It must have been what God had. No, our choices oftentimes dictate our lives. I am one for free will, but I am also one for the sovereignty of God, and I don't believe that they conflict with each other. They coordinate with each other. They certainly uh, work well within each other. God is sovereign. And what he says is going to happen in Joel is going to happen. But there are some things I can do today that can make a difference of what God's will was for me today. And that's because of what I did, not because of what he desired. So we are not to look at things in life and just say, well, it was, it was just meant to be. No, our choice made that happen.
We're, we're, we're bearing the, the, the penalty or the consequences of our decisions. We need to understand that truth. And I know a lot of people who will put the blame back on God. Well, it must have just been meant to be. No. What's meant to be is for us to get saved. That's what God wants. But do we still have the choice? Absolutely. So we need to understand this wonderful truth of the, the free will of man, the sovereignty of God. They are not in conflict. They both are in existence, and they both work well together the way that God intended for them. The writer is Joel, obviously. There's a number of Joels, a couple of several Joels that are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, the only one that mentions Joel as the prophet, meaning uh, this particular Joel, uh, is found in this book or in reference to this book. So uh, there are a couple times, John, I think Peter, um, on the day of Pentecost, he mentions when the Holy Spirit came, uh, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He references Joel as the writer or the author. And even then, he's dealing with it being the prophetic Joel, the one that wrote about prophetic events. There are a couple of other Joels mentioned in Scripture that are not the same fella. We need to keep that in mind. And um, you won't find a reference to Joel um, outside of this book uh, and what's written in it. So you know, while you may find in Acts, uh, Peter saying something referencing Joel back to this book, uh, what he's referencing is what's found in these pages right here in this part. You won't find uh, in other, you know, in some cases like when we were in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, you had multiple books by multiple people that would talk about uh, the biography or events of a life of David. Let's say you won't find that in Joel. Joel is is one book about Joel, and then people reference him, and that's the way that works. So uh, he's not he's not found other places throughout Scripture in reference to his life or additional information that you will not find inside this book itself. Um, he references Zion and the house of the Lord so often that he more than likely lived near Jerusalem. There's not an awful lot of biographical information given about him. Uh, there's some indication that his knowledge of um, the house of the Lord and its practices, that he probably lived near Jerusalem, and there is even some uh, possibility that he may have been a priest as well. Um, he talks uh, a lot about the priesthood and his understanding of the priesthood and how it functioned is an indication that either he was a priest or he was very knowledgeable about those things that happened in the temple. And uh, so again, uh, just kind of a little bit of background. His messages are characterized as very clear, very concise. He's not long-winded, obviously. He's got a very short book here. He's very clear, he's very concise, and he is absolutely uncompromising in his message. Uh, he does not water it down. He tells it like it is. He's bringing a message that these folks don't want to hear. Uh, he's writing this. Uh, some people, uh, the time frame of the book is hard to pin down. There's a, there's a broad range of dates that are given. Uh, there's not a mention in the book of the northern kingdom. There's no mention of Assyria. There's no mention of Syria. There is mention of the Greeks. So it's a good good possibility that the book was written. He served in Judah during uh, the time that was shortly following the time of exile. Uh, Babylon is not mentioned. Uh, Persia and Medes are not mentioned, but the Greeks are mentioned. So possibly written during the time of the, the Greeks being in power just before the Roman Empire uh, under Alexander the Great uh, would probably be uh, a reasonable time to set the time, uh, but I would not be dogmatic on that time frame. Uh, there's no way to prove that. It's just uh, like uh, you can't take the absence of something in a book as a reason that something happened. 
it's just interesting to note that normally when one of these uh, fellows has been prophesying to Judah, they make some reference to the northern kingdom. And uh, at this point, the northern kingdom has already uh, been disbanded and scattered. Uh, and uh, this is probably post-exilic uh, when they went into exile with uh, Babylon and Persia in that time. It's probably after that period of time. So no real distinct time frame. Uh, let's see. Well, this is going to take as long as the others. We're almost done, though. The Christ of Joel. Um, turn to Joel chapter 2. Let's look in verse number 28. <clears throat> Joel chapter 2, verse number 28. And he makes reference here to uh, the promise that Christ is going to make to the disciples about the sending of another comforter. In verse 28 it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. <coughs> Excuse me. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. Therefore the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Uh, and, uh, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call, upon the name, uh, call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be de uh, deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So again, that, those last couple verses especially, dealing with from about verse 30 down to verse number 32, dealing specifically with the end-time events. The verse 28, verse 29, dealing with the time period after Christ ascended, where the Holy Spirit comes, and for 2,000 years now, uh, we have been not under the law, but we are now walking in the Spirit. We're being led daily by the Spirit. The law is still a schoolmaster. It teaches us some things, but we don't live by the law anymore. We live by the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. The importance of sensitivity and understanding what the will of God is. I wish I could say more on this, because there are so many times that I have seen in my life, and I know it's happened in the lives of others, that we take the will of us, or the will of the flesh, and we state it as that being the will of God, and that's how we get by with it. We need to get to a place where we are walking in a, in a daily way, sensitive, sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a feeling. There is just a knowledge that this is what is right. This is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, some people say, well, I just don't feel peace. There's some times, I'll be real frank with you, I don't know that David, when he walked up to Goliath, was feeling a whole lot of peace. He had confidence. He had boldness. He had faith. But I can guarantee you there were probably some flutters in his heart. Was it God's will? Absolutely. Did he have peace? Probably not. You can't always use the, the feelings of the flesh to determine God's will. I will say this, God's will will never, let me restate that, God's will will never, capital N, capital E, capital V, capital E, capital R, from my seventh grade education, will never contradict His word. If you say, well, this is something I believe to be God's will, and it's in defiance of His Word, you can mark it down. That is not God's will. I, I, as a pastor, I've told people this before. I cannot tell people what God's will for their life is. But there are many things I can tell them that's not God's will for your life because I have an authority to base it on. 
It's not my opinion. It's what God has said. Be careful. I, I think there's a lot of times that we pin uh, the blame for our decisions on God's will. We've got to be so careful of this. Um, so, knowing this, uh, he speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit, verses 28, verse 29. <clears throat> we see that mentioned and um, uh, are fulfilled, if you will, in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15, is where Christ speaks of sending another comforter. In Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, we find the fulfillment of that on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the, the Spirit does come, and um, the, Peter speaks of that uh, when he speaks in Acts chapter 2. Uh, verses 16 to 21, he speaks about this unique event of the Holy Spirit coming on them as that which is fulfilled by the, that was said by the prophet Joel. And he references Joel specifically by name. Christ is also shown by Joel to be the one who will judge all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat in chapter 3 and verse number 2. Uh, he's the one that will judge all nations. So again, Christ is pictured as the one that will be the one to judge these nations. The key theme is the terrible day of the Lord. The key verses, chapter 2, verse number 11, which we've already read, and chapters 2, verses 28 to 29, which we've already read. Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we just read about. The key chapter is chapter number 2. Chapter number 2, it has a lot of, uh, not that the rest of Joel should be ignored, but the heart of his message is found in verse, uh, chapter number 2. And it's kind of the key chapter for the book. All right, I hope that'll be a help to you. Uh, there's some, it's a small book, but I'm going to tell you something. It packs a punch. It's got some Bible principles in there that every Christian would do well to read this book fairly often and to learn from its pages. Uh, even though it's written to Judah and the children of Israel, and we need to keep that in mind, it is written to the Jews. There are so many principles that we can learn from it that are applicable to us as Gentiles. And I want to encourage you in that. Let's stand together we dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. <coughs> we pray that you'll bless it and use it. And Lord, may it uh, change our hearts and our lives to be uh, what you would long for them to be. Your will would be for them. May we learn to live diligently, fervently the Christian life. To put some, put some effort and some, uh, some uh, character and discipline behind living the Christian life and doing 